This episode of New Politics was released on the 10th of November, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wongal people. New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the next election is yet to be called, but campaigning has already started, and branch stacking the Liberal Party way. It's all funded by the public. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Knight of the Realm. An election date hasn't been set yet, and it might not happen in the short term, but it's clear that senior politicians are starting to hit the campaign trail and frame their talking points into neat little sound grabs. The Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, he went off to a beach in Foster, and that's on the north coast of New South Wales, and showed what can happen when MPs try to trawl for votes from the public. I'd like to say something to you. I'd I'd like to say you're condemning my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, to a life of climate change and destruction. How dare you hold Australia hostage, hold Australia hostage... For the National Party, you're a disgrace, Mr Joyce. You're a disgrace. You really, really are a disgrace. And you, you are the same. You don't respect us and you don't don't reflect the people of Australia. You're the Deputy Prime Minister, but you're a bloody disgrace, Mr Joyce. And Scott Morrison is also in campaign mode, but not releasing any of the details. Prime Minister, when will you release the net zero modelling? Soon. Do you have, a, do you have an estimation then? Soon. When? About a few months? Uh, soon. Sounds like there might not be any net zero modelling to release there, but it's definitely coming to an end of the parliamentary term. And Scott Morrison is putting out his usual raft of mistruths and misrepresentations. But is there ever a time when MPs are not campaigning for the next election? One of the shortfalls of a three-year term is that you spend one year getting all your stuff through. The second year should be spent consolidating it. And then the third year you spend campaigning for the election and tidying up any other issues and emergencies. This only gives us two years of productivity before we get into hysteria mode again. Before the broadcast, Eddie and I were discussing the 1988 referendum about four-year terms rather than three-year terms. And sometimes you think, yes, that'd be a good idea. And then you look at Could we have handled four years of Tony Abbott? Can we handle four years of Scott Morrison? Uh, In New South Wales, it's been quite disastrous. Four-year terms of the Bedbury, Dukley and uh, O'Farrell governments has been awful. So you've got to think about what is it we really want from government. And of course, it's more than what we're currently getting in both federally and in New South Wales. I think Morrison likes campaigning because he's a first impressions man, I think. He's the guy who comes along to the first meeting, a bit like Daryl Maguire. You meet him for the first time, you think, oh, he seems like a nice fellow, and he sets you up with everyone. If you meet him the second time, you're much less impressed because the weaknesses show through. And this is going to be Scott Morrison's problem, I think, campaigning for a second time. The first time, we, the Australian public didn't actually have enough time to really know him. Those of us watching carefully thought that he would be a disaster and those of us watching carefully have been shown to be right. Mm. But those of us who don't watch that closely have also seen the guy who went away on holidays while the bushfires were raging. The guy who 
forgot to bring in enough vaccines in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years in terms of population. The guy who totally humiliated himself on the world stage with a level of ineptness not seen in 120 years of federation compared to giants such as Deacon, such as Menzies, such as Bruce, such as Fraser. And this is not an endorsement of any of the policies, but they were men of substance. They were men who were able to do the job of prime minister. Morrison pales in comparison. He pales into a white hole of nothingness. However, he does like campaigning because he has enough, we'll call it self-belief, to think that it might work a second time. Now, he might be right on this. I don't want to say, oh, you know, a lot of people have already written him off, but he's a cornered animal and cornered animals tend to fight. Well, self-belief is very, very important for a prime minister. And if you don't believe in yourself, well, no one else is going to believe in your position. But Scott Morrison was very quick to move on from the COP26 disaster. And, and that's where he had really nothing to offer on climate change and created a diplomatic disaster with the French government. And this whole idea of moving on, this is his modus operandi, move on and forget about these events as though they never actually occurred. You mentioned the bushfire crisis before, he moved on from that, we, he snuck out of the country and went off to Hawaii for a family holiday, he's moved on from poor vaccination rollout, moved on from economic mismanagement, it's almost like he moves on from everything as though nothing really matters anymore. And. I've noticed that journalists in the media, they're marvelling at this sort of behaviour. They commend Morrison for being the consummate politician rather than calling out his obvious lies and double standards. And sometimes he's actually got triple standards. This whole process that's going on at the moment, it reminds me of the launch of the 2004 election campaign. And the first statement that was made by Prime Minister John Howard at the time was, who do you trust on the economy? And the coalition at that time, they had a number of issues where they were caught out lying on pretty much everything. They were considered to be mean and tricky. And Howard turned that around on its head by focusing on the economy. And it's obvious that Morrison and Josh Frydenberg are going to use this same tactic, or at least I'll try to use the same tactic. And they've already started with their talking points of the economy being in, in a bad shape and it's recovering and we can't risk changing a government at this point of time without mentioning that the economy is in a bad state because of their poor economic management. So we can see that Scott Morrison will try the same trick again, but he's not as politically clever as John Howard. And John Howard was up against Mark Latham in the 2004 election. Anthony Albanese is fairly innocuous, and we've been fairly critical of him over the past two and a half years since he's been the leader. We've criticised Albanese for being a bit too innocuous, but he's definitely not Mark Latham, and he's not Bill Shorten, and Scott Morrison is definitely not John Howard. It's interesting. Latham really was Herbert Everett Mark II, in that We've got to be fair here, and a lot of our listeners are going to snort derisively at me, but Latham had a lot of the qualities that might have made him a good prime minister. He was very intelligent. He knew how to do policy. He was across everything. It was undermined by a severe personal flaw of temper, aggression. Everts was undermined, and Evert was a much more intelligent man and a much more brilliant man in many ways. Evert was undermined by mental illness, which is very sad. And the flaws that undermine Latham's good qualities turned out to be fatal. Now, we have joked 
Morrison doesn't actually have any good qualities and it is hard to find them. But certainly the charm he was able to put on to make himself the everyday man, which worked for just enough people in 2019. And many journalists in the media, they are suggesting that Morrison is a formidable campaigner. And, and of course, once you win an, an election, that's a, that, well, that's a winning formula. So I guess the media has got a right to put that moniker on Scott Morrison. But we also have to put this into context. Certainly he won the 2019 election and that was an, an election that nobody expected him to win. But he only won that 2019 election by one seat. And that was against Bill Shorten, who had a lot of issues within the electorate. And it was also the type of election victory that only occurs once in a generation. So my opinion, as as far as election strategies is is concerned, my feeling is that Scott Morrison is like a one-trick pony, where he'll constantly go back to the same tricks. He's lied about what he's done in the past. He lies about the Labor Party. He gets into media stunts. Now, as you mentioned before, this all worked for him at the 2019 election, but every single federal election is different. And if Scott Morrison wants to have a rerun of the 2019 election, he's going to be sorely disappointed. There's an old uh, saying that goes along the lines of uh, generals always fight the battle before. And it certainly looks like that uh, Morrison will be trying to fight that battle. There was pictures of him cooking a curry on Diwali, which to me, was a very tinnied thing to do given his treatment of Australians in India not six months ago. There are still many Australian citizens trapped over there despite having a, an Australian passport. The Australian passport gives you free passage back to Australia and he prevented it. So to say, I'm cooking Diwali and there was also meat in the recipe, which seems a bit off for a festival that's made up of religions that tend to be vegetarian. It seemed to me to be a very tinnied thing. He was in the barber this week getting his hair cut with one of his backbenchers looking on approvingly. Now, if the best you can do is get a haircut, things are desperate. One other issue that I've noticed recently is that when Anthony Albanese became the Labor leader in 2019, he told caucus not to use the word liar when they were talking about politics or when they were talking about Scott Morrison. And I'm not sure if any other words were permitted, like mendacious or trickster or con artist, but definitely the word liar was banned by Anthony Albanese at at that time. That was just over two and a half years ago. But it has been getting more of a workout in recent times. The Labor Party is not holding back anymore, it seems. And here's Chris Bowen letting everyone know what he thinks about Scott Morrison. And now we've seen the most inept foreign trip by this uh, Prime Minister since Billy McMahon made a fool of himself in Washington 50 years ago this week. Uh, And we've also seen the Prime Minister's fundamental dishonesty on display to the world. Now, we know Scott Morrison's a liar. He lies in Parliament about briefings for Anthony Albanese on COVID. He lies about whether he's ever called EVs weekend uh, wrecking. He lies about whether he ever used the term Shanghai Sam. He lies about Christian Porter's disclosure. This guy is a liar and it is now impacting on our national security. To me, based on these statements that are now coming out by Labor spokespeople such as Chris Bowen, It would appear that Labor's research would suggest that lying in such a way is a big problem for Scott Morrison. Now, this can work either way. The electorate might already know that Morrison is a massive liar and think, oh, well, all politicians lie, what's the big deal, and still give him the tick of approval. Or they might be surprised about the sheer audacity 
of these lies. But at this stage, it's hard to know. But you'd think that after three years of being totally untruthful might be a bit too much for the electorate. It depends. And this is where it's hard to predict. We're really in a form of the murdocracy where the mass media in Australia covering up not everything, um, but quite a lot of what happens, arguing that oh, the public aren't interested. But part of the reason that public aren't interested is that a lot of the public don't get told. It's going to be interesting, certainly based on every election campaign up to 2013. The Morrison government has no leg to stand on, but the rules change severely. And by the rules, I mean the unwritten rules, the patterns and the indications that we as analysts could look at. And you could interpret them in all types of ways, but it included polls. It included performances. How well did the leader of the opposition speak? Did the prime minister make his point? Did the scandal coming out of the cabinet do enough damage to cost the seat or will, will they get away with this one? And you could look at the nature of it and you could pretty much more or less predict an election. Didn't stop upsets, of course, didn't stop surprises, but it, it certainly made it a lot easier. Since 2013, where we have a Liberal Party that's not interested in doing anything, and part of the campaign in 2019 was that they weren't going to do anything. All they're interested in doing is stopping Labor getting stuff done and stopping the Greens getting stuff done and stopping independent candidates who aren't aligned with them getting stuff done and shoveling money to rich benefactors. Barnaby Joyce said it himself, I don't want the government in my life, to which everyone says, well, get out of the government, Barnaby. You're not wanted if that's your attitude. But he was really expressing what this government thinks. Smaller and smaller and smaller to non-existent government, which, of course, favours the wealthy. And by the wealthy, I don't mean the middle class. I mean the ultra-wealthy, the top 1%. They can afford health. They can afford to protect themselves with private security. They can afford, and with less government, they can use these things. They don't want to pay for insurance for workers' compensation. They don't want to pay tax, which goes into welfare for those less fortunate. The welfare they want is theirs. I am amazed that more Australians aren't outraged at this. And it's something that as listeners of this podcast you should be discussing. You should be telling your friends who not sure if Albanese is up to it. I'm not pushing Anthony as Prime Minister. I'm pushing the fact that we need a better government. And in this case, I do think the Labor Party can provide a much better government, something that works for, if not all Australians, then most Australians. And the party of free market, who... The free marketeers are the first ones to run to government when things go wrong. They will brag about how they did it all themselves, using public roads, using employers who they tried to underpay, using technology that was often funded by universities and the CSIRO, but they did it themselves. It's rubbish, and really, we shouldn't be falling for it anymore. Well, a leader generally can get away with telling massive lies. And you referred to Labor possibly providing better government or good government if and when they actually get back into office. But we won't know that until that point is achieved. 
If Labor is banking on an election win on just pointing out Morrison's many lies, well, they might not be able to get very far with that. I'd suggest that if they keep making that link with issues of competence, that's where they'll have more electoral success. If they keep making that link between events such as the bushfire crisis back in 2019 and Morrison going off on his Hawaii holiday. Now, that's got a bit of everything. It's got the egregious lies where Morrison tried to cover all of that up, actually in the middle of a crisis as well. And he didn't go overseas during holidays. It was in early December when most of Australia was still at work. So that in itself is not going to win the election for Labor, but it's an excellent way to create leverage with other key issues. And we also have to remember that in the next election, Labor isn't just up against the Liberal National Coalition or just up against Scott Morrison. They're up against the full machinery of government and they're also up against the media. And we saw a very good example of that when Morrison returned from the COP26 conference last week. Now, that was a complete disaster of a trip. There's absolutely no question about that. But for the conservative media, and that's most of the media in Australia at the moment is conservative, but Morrison returned as a hero. The Australian Financial Review was claiming that Morrison had returned unscathed. It wasn't quite like the piece in our time from Neville Chamberlain in 1938, but it was pretty close. Chamberlain had reason to believe that he'd achieved peace in our time. It must be said appeasement worked with every government except for one. The one that it didn't work with was the big one, and that's what causes World War II, of course. But yeah, even Chamberlain had more credibility in saying I had achieved peace in their time, which is saying something. But now the media is pushing that idea that the French president, Emmanuel Macron, he's not a clean skin, he's prone to lying as well, and that there were good reasons for the cancellation of the $90 billion French submarine deal, that it was running far behind schedule, it was way over budget. Even though evidence presented to the Senate Estimates Committee recently has proved that this is not the case. And they were also making fun of Emmanuel Macron when he embraced the retiring German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. So once again, it just seems that the Australian media has forgotten what its role in society is meant to be all about, and they're more keen to keep a French president accountable rather than the Prime Minister of Australia. Yeah. Macron, as much as we may disagree with him, is a substantial figure, and him and Angela Merkel, again, someone who we mightn't vote for, but give her her due. She ran Germany very competently, had a very close working relationship, holding the European Union together while small minds like Nigel Farage in Britain and the Spanish separatist union and things like that tried to undermine them. Now, we might side with those people, but they did make the work that Macron and Merkel did a lot harder. And together, they stuck by each other. They worked very closely together. Of course, they're going to embrace when they see each other. They're friends. Morrison couldn't get anyone to catch his eye. Even Matthias Cormann, who he wasted time getting the job that Cormann is out of his depth for and is failing in. Even Matthias Cormann turned away from him, looked down at his shoes and turned away. Couldn't even bring himself to shake him by the hand. Morrison's trip was an embarrassment. It was awful. Tony Abbott at least got to make small talk that he got it totally wrong is irrelevant to this point. No one wanted to speak to Morrison. And of course, Morrison gives a speech where he says there's nobody in this room who is going to bring on climate change because it's going to be done by private industry. He wasn't actually lying about nobody being in the room because there was nobody in the room. Nobody was even interested in seeing what he had to say because he'd said it all. 
he finds himself on the other side of the coin. And unless decades of climate science suddenly turns out to be wrong, he's going to remain on the wrong side of history. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. The Assistant Treasurer, Michael Sukar, he's been caught up in a scheme where taxpayer funds have been allegedly used for Liberal Party branch stacking purposes, and it seems the Liberal Party are not so good at managing government, but have high-level skills in accessing as many rorts as possible. Sukar is a member of the national right faction of the Liberal Party, and for those people who believe Malcolm Turnbull when he said there are no factions in the Liberal Party a few years ago, he was actually wrong. Factions are alive and well in the Liberal Party. And the National Right Faction is a group of MPs who are highly conservative, homophobic, anti-women, sexist and racist. And aside from all of that, they're actually very nice people. But they've taken hold of the Victoria division of the Liberal Party. Whenever there are branch stacking issues in the Labor Party, there are always calls for the national leader to do something and force a resignation. But the media has been strangely reluctant to call in Scott Morrison to resolve this issue. And it seems that the media has got different rules when it comes to calling out bad behaviour in the Liberal Party. Probably, let's be fair to them, they know that Scott would do nothing. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, if there's branch stacking in the Labor Party, it's always whoever the leader's is fault. It's because they can't run an organisation and they, they have no control of their rogue members. Now, half of the Liberal Party are rogue members. They go off on their own. And when you throw the National Party together... Rabble is too organised a word. Dishevelled rabble starts to give you a sense of what they are. And I, I will state again, the genuine, honest branch member of the Liberal Party who is there for the ideology that they think it should be, who is working to try and make Australia a better place, you will always have my sympathy, if not my agreement. But I will always come down on the side of someone trying to do better. I'm talking about people like Sukar, I'm talking about people like Stuart Robert, I'm talking about people like Frydenberg and Angus Taylor, let alone Morrison, who don't seem to be there for anything except extremely personal gain and nastiness and bitterness, not for the betterment of the country. Now, all members of parliament are allocated funds to employ people to carry out their duties in their office and... Of course, they're going to carry out party political work. That's the nature of politics. But the problem here is that these people have been alleged to have been employed to 
specifically recruit members to the, to the Liberal Party to support the National Right faction. And Michael Sukar is the key leader there. The National Right has got a few different names. They're also known as the Ambition Faction. That was a surprise to me when I found that out. And they're also known as the Religious Right. And many of the people that they have recruited have been totally unreflective of the community. They reflected a number of members from the Mormon Church and they're making up 13% of the elected positions within the Victoria branch of the Liberal Party, even though their community only makes up 0.1% of the total population. They've also recruited members of Opus Dei, neo-Nazis and right-wing fascists to the party as well. Now, it is known as the Liberal Party, but they might be just being a little bit too liberal with the people who are becoming members and holding senior positions within their party. Yeah, it's been taken over. And it really does upset me because the Liberal Party, at least in theory, was meant for what Menzies called the forgotten people, the middle class, the lower middle class and and some of the working class. And Menzies said, look, the, the working class have a party. They are looked after. They are represented in parliament. He said the upper classes don't need to be looked after. They, they're wealthy. We're after those people who have self-respect, who don't ask for help when they need it. We now have a bunch of people who have nothing to do with that sector of society. In fact, that sector of society is getting lower and lower. So the religious right, who don't use religion as a foundation for a moral and ethical life, but use it as a weapon and use it as a shield and use it as a cover for their nefarious deeds, take over and bring in the fringes because the fringes don't really care about ethics. So the Mormon church, and I'm not disparaging every single follower of the Mormon faith. You can have whatever wrong beliefs you like, and I don't really mean that. I'm talking about these people who are using the Catholicism as a way to do awful things, and a lot of awful things get done in the name of Catholicism. This is not, to again, to reflect badly on the person who goes to Mass every Sunday for their own philosophical beliefs, for their own theological beliefs, for their own deep faith. And I'm sure that there are some members of our community at New Politics who are part of this. I'm talking about the cynics. I'm talking about the crooks. I'm talking about the hypocrites. I'm talking about the people who Jesus makes a whip for and throws out of the temple. These are the people who make up the party. They give the rest of the church a bad name. Howard Hughes used to employ Mormons as his bookkeepers because he knew he could trust them because their levels of integrity were so high. I doubt he'd throw a bucket of water on Sukkar's faction if they were on fire. Well, you do want party membership of any mainstream political party to be reflective of the community. So if 13% of the Australian population was Mormon, well, sure, have 13% of the Victoria branch of the Liberal Party made up of members of the Mormon church as well. But they're only 0.1% of the total population. So we do have to wonder about what's going on there. But it has been interesting to see the media reporting of these incidents of Liberal Party branch stacking and this is definitely a case which involves public funds and especially when we compare it with branch stacking of Adam Sumirek in the Labor Party last year. So he's an MP in the Victoria Parliament and at that time everyone in the media was saying well everyone in the Labor Party's got to do something about this. Daniel Andrews was asked about well what's he going to do about this and so was the federal leader Anthony Albanese and they kept on pushing for Somirek to be expelled from the Labor Party at that time. But in Michael Sukkar's case, 
It seems like the media is presenting the information and then letting the public judge for themselves. Josh Frydenberg was asked if he supports Michael Sucker. He said yes, and the media then moved on. So it seems like we just don't get that ongoing commentary about it from the media when it's the Liberal Party at fault. But when it's the Labor Party, it's a totally different story. We just never hear the end of it. Yeah, and yes, the Labor Party should be held to account. Of course they should. So should the Greens. So should any party that wants to make it in public life. Very few of them do, except for the Labor Party and the Greens. Now, the Greens do get scandals. They tend not to be financial or branch stacking, although the New South Wales Greens do tend to not like the left wing of their faction and tend to purge the left. But that's party politics anyway. The Liberal Party have done that with their more moderate and left factions. They've basically purged them out of parliamentary seats anyway. Who we call moderates in the Liberal Party is is a joke. <laughs> um, so we must hold all parties to account, but we must hold them all to account equally and fairly. Is there branch stacking in Labor? Probably. Should it be cleared out? Yes. Is there branch stacking in the Liberal Party? Yes. We know this because the reports come out. Should it be cleared out? Yes. And anything else is just stacking the game against one side and the media really shouldn't do that i know that the owners of the media have their own political views and and want the side to be stacked and i know too that this has been happening since at least 1850 with the uh formation of the sydney morning herald uh it's been a problem in australia since we started having newspapers but we can certainly try and elect people who are game enough to try and change the legislation and who will hopefully get the numbers to change it so that we can at least level the playing field a bit more. Not to stop owners of media having their own private political viewpoints, but to stop those political viewpoints becoming a dominant voice in the Australian discourse. Related issue, Michael Sukar, he wanted to block this information that was coming out about Liberal Party branch stacking, and of course he would, it's incredibly damaging to him, but there's other parts of this information that have been coming out, and that's the continuing sexist nature of the Liberal Party. There were revelations that when Senator Jane Hume wrote an article in 2018 about the difficulties of balancing being a mother with young children and a life in politics... Michael Sukar told party members that Hume was being bizarre and indulgent and couldn't wait for her retirement from politics. And we have to remember that Jane Hume is a member of the Liberal Party. And this follows on from the way that the Liberal Party treats women from their own side. There was also the way that Scott Morrison was backgrounding against Julia Banks in 2018, the way that he ignored Brittany Higgins and also backgrounded against her. And now there's Christian Porter and Andrew Lamming who have threatened defamation action against Gemma Carey. And she's an academic at the Centre for Social Impact at UNSW. 
So in this case, Gemma Carey did publish some offensive messages on Twitter, but she did acknowledge that they were offensive. She removed those messages and then she made a public apology. And for most people, I suspect that this would be enough. But Porter and Lamming and the journalist Peter Van Onselen, he's been involved in this as well and he's joined in. They've decided to take it further. Now, these guys come from the most privileged backgrounds that you can imagine. Hale School in Perth, Scots College in Sydney, the Anglican Church Grammar School in Brisbane. To me, fair enough. If someone's been defamed, there are legal avenues that are available to them. But this is such a low order issue. David, you and I have been threatened with defamation action by George Christensen and about his trips to Manila. And good afternoon to his staffers. Hope you're enjoying today's episode. But this process of defamation action this is primarily to shut people up it's all about crushing dissent making sure that people don't criticize the government of the day or criticizing people in powerful positions and maybe we're getting a better idea of why michael Zucker was branch stacking for the liberal party with trying to enroll neo-nazis and fascists they're very happy to dish out their own form of abuse to everyone else but they want to keep everyone else quiet when they're on the receiving end yeah john barillaro settled his case against Jordan Shanks' friendly Geordies. He went out claiming it was somewhat of a victory. Compared to Christian Porter's, it was somewhat of a victory. Barillaro ended up not getting any money from Shanks, and Shanks promised to not sell any more Barillaro merchandise. And Shanks apologised or acknowledged that some of the tweets may have been hurtful. Now, hurtful isn't defamatory. Defamatory is the damage that is done in the public. Andrew Laming, a technicality on on a very vile type of harassment, on a definition that a lot of people thought wasn't quite right. His reputation is trash. Christian Porter has no reputation to speak of through his own actions. This isn't defamatory. If I was to say Christian Porter was fiddling the petty cash at Parliament House... I do not think this, nor do I impute it, nor do I condone it, nor do I want this spread around that I said this. And then someone doing business with him heard this, that he was fiddling the petty cash at Parliament House, and they believed him and stopped doing business with him. Then he might have a case for defamation. I have nothing but the utmost uh, regard for the way Christian Porter has handled the petty cash in Parliament House. Well, the people of Western Australia might not think that. He was the treasurer in Western Australia all those years ago. (laughs) True. True. I have no direct experience with that, and I'm more than happy to hear uh, our Western Australian listeners' opinion. Please put it on our Patreon page or on Twitter. But my point is, is that whatever Gemma Carey said, it may have been hurtful and it may have been offensive. I, I don't know. I didn't see it because she deleted it. But it wasn't defamatory against any of those men. And there was a point where, and at that point was not long ago, where you just took it as a public figure. Unless it was seriously defamatory and hurtful, you just took it. You didn't weaponize it. In Bill Hayden's memoirs, he talks about someone yelling out something offensive and he said, it hurt, but I just swallowed it and carried on. And that's just one example. Memoir after memoir after memoir talks about the need for broad shoulders. And of course, some loved it. Some waded in and gave it right back. Try calling Paul Keating something offensive. See how long you last by the time he's finished with you. Or Bob Carr, for example. Silly names and accusations of nefarious deeds bounced off them like bullets bounced off Superman. 
They might have crushed lesser beings. John Howard, again, loved it. You could call John Howard whatever you like, and he'd either ignore it or he'd shoot back at you. The other point with the Barillaro case is that Barillaro replied to a lot of this stuff under parliamentary privilege, which gives you protection against this stuff. I'm very surprised that Peter Van Onselen, and, and it became a strange thing too, because one, you wouldn't want to be tied with Andrew Laming and Christian Porter currently, and unless both men are innocent, and they may well be, it's strange bedfellows for a professor of uh, politics to have. But also he claimed that he didn't actually approve the order being issued, that the lawyer did it without his consent. But again, defamation shouldn't be weaponized. It should be used for those genuine cases where somebody of unimpeachable integrity and honesty gets damaged by something else somebody else has said deliberately and maliciously. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.